But the second major truth we see here about God in Genesis 1 is his infinite grace and condescension. What happens, you see, is that God in his own triune heart desires in his inter-Trinitarian communion with himself to shed abroad his love and his communicable attributes and his, something of his glory and his peace outside of himself. And so in his condescending grace, he comes in and makes this little puny world with little creatures on it like you and me. And throughout this whole chapter, you see, God just but speaks a word, doesn't he? And this happens, and that happens. It's just a word, and, and it happens. A creative word of God, showing God's greatness, God's condescension, our smallness. You see, it's God's condescending grace to create at all. Just as it's God's condescending grace to save fallen sinners. Sometimes we forget that when it comes to creation. We say, well, it's only after the fall that God came with his grace. Well, yes, that's true of saving grace in Christ. But it's grace that there was creation at all. Grace is already embedded in these first verse. In the beginning, God created. He didn't have to create. It's grace he created. Condescending grace. He made the heavens and the earth. It's grace he made you and me. Condescending grace. But dear child of God, it's remarkable grace that God made you a new creation in Christ. That he persisted with you as a rebel creature. When you had no compelling power with him. And why did he do so? Why does he save you? Why does he keep you safe? Because he longs to share his joy with you. His holiness with you. His righteousness with you. His beauty with you. Because he's a God of grace. All of salvation is God's superlative, condescending grace. Coming to poor, sinful wretches like you and me. Imagine the God of the universe bothering taking pains, sending His Son to suffer and to die for puny little creatures like you and me. That's what the dignity and the, and, and the magnanimous exaltedness of Genesis 1 conveys to us. It sets the tone for, for the amazing wonder of Genesis 3 that God comes with the Gospel. A God who's so great and who creates so magnificently. Coming back to a fallen rebel creature. Oh, what great grace. What a burning desire must lie in the heart of God to communicate His love, His mercy, His grace to His creature. And then finally, God reveals the major truth of His attributes. Many of His attributes in this chapter. I want to look just at a few of them with you. Quickly before we sing. First of all, God reveals here his perfect wisdom, doesn't he? Wonderful wisdom. We'll see that more next time. The orderliness of the creation. The pattern of day one with day four, two and five, three and six. A beautiful orderliness. We'll see how God, in a wonderful way, prepared everything for, for the dignity of human life. For the apex and the crown of his creation. Oh, what wisdom there is in God. 
in his whole perfect plan for this world and for creation. And how foolish you and I, how absurd it is for you and I to sometimes imagine that we know better than God or that we would think wiser thoughts than God. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, really, if I had been God, I would have done it this way. That's, that's blasphemy. That's foolishness. You don't know a thing compared to this all-wise God who sees all things and all contingencies at one time in all ages and who knows all things and who is all-wise. Dear child of God, the next time you are prone to think that God should do something different, you think of these four words, in the beginning, God. And put your hand upon your mouth and say, truly, Lord, thou wilt do all things and work all things for good to them that love thee. And that I trust, because thou art all wise and all loving and all faithful. You see how already the first four words of the Bible can, can correct our thinking and be spiritual medicine. For our souls. To get us to bow by the grace of the Spirit under the wisdom of God. But then secondly, this whole chapter reveals the perfect goodness of God, doesn't it? How many times does it say? And God saw that it was good. You see, nothing stained this creation. God wants to show us on the opening page of the Bible that He's a good God and He does good. Thou art good and doest good, the psalmist said. God is always good. Stephen Sharnock, in that great, great work on the attributes of God, spends nearly 200 pages on the goodness of God, more than any other attribute. God is essential goodness. What He does when He touches lives and begins to mold and transform them is always perfectly good. All things about God are good. And if we understand, if we understand that even from Genesis 1, it ought to revolutionize our whole attitude to our whole life. If you're a believer, my friend, it ought to change all your thinking. It ought to bring you before God with an open heart and an open arms to embrace His will, rather than to suspiciously scrutinize that will and fear that will or want to change that will. God is essentially good. God will do all things well. Trust Him. Trust Him. He's worthy. And then finally, there is, of course, here His unlimited power. Isn't it amazing how, when you read Genesis 1, God does all this with just astonishing ease, doesn't He? And God said. <laughs> just said. There it is. The whole world. And you, and me. Man. Well, with man, he did a little more work. But it's with amazing ease, you see. God speaks the creative word. He calls the heavens into being. He commands the earth to be formed. He speaks and sets the stars in place. Our God congregation is a great and powerful and glorious and good and wise God. Genesis 1 tells us, worship this God. In all his glory. Now how do we apply all these major truths about God to our lives today? 
Well, I believe there are two very important ways, no doubt more ways, but two very important ways I want to try to convey to you. The first way surrounds this whole idea of the primacy of God. God is primary. He's before creation. He's in the beginning, the eternal beginning. And what that means for our practical lives is that God must take the primacy of our entire lives. It means when we approach Genesis 1, we don't come so much with a spirit of inquisitiveness as we come with the spirit of worship. God is primary. And the corollary there means that he must occupy in our individual lives and in our families and in our congregation and in our nation the same place. In the beginning, God. May I suggest to you that these first four words are a foundational principle out of which we are to operate our entire lives. This is the way God created us. That he would have primacy over our every thought, our every word, every idle word, so men shall give an account, and every action. But even more, the core of our being must surrender to God. Now that means, I believe, that the vast majority of all our confusion in our lives and the problems that we face and our lack of surrender and submission arise from this whole area of not bowing under the first four words of the Bible. You see, we run into all kinds of trouble, don't we, when we don't embrace this practical principle of bowing before God as the primacy over the whole of life. So what do we do? Well, we make our plans, then we ask other people, and finally we ask God at the end if these plans are acceptable to Him. We've got it all wrong, friends. The way to come to God, the way to plan our lives is first to go to God. In the beginning, God. And too often what we do, even as believers, is we secretly make up our mind what we want God to do for us or others to do for us. We try to implement the plans. We try to move in a certain direction. And with our prayers even, we try to pull God behind us, thinking that prayer is trying to change God when really the purpose of prayer is to change us and to make us conform to God and His will and to follow on behind Him. You see, we want our plan sealed and accepted by God, but God wants His will sealed and accepted by us. And that's why the Bible doesn't begin with man, but it begins with God. And so whether it's something great or whether it's something small, we ought to bring everything to God. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. 
And the word all there means all. And acknowledge means right at the beginning. You bring your, your immediate thoughts to God. If you, if you feel that you have a certain thing you need to do, before you plan it out in details, you ask God for wisdom. And you seek to ask, first of all, what are the biblical principles that the primacy of God would convey to me in this particular plan, this particular thing, that I need to consider before I even begin to plan. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. May I ask you if you're doing that? Are you seeking grace to allow God the primacy? Of your life. Are you bowing under God? You see what Genesis 1-1 tells us. Is that. The way for us to begin all our beginnings. Is to begin under God. That's true of the two couples getting married this week. That's true. Of you when you go back to work tomorrow morning. Begin your day with God. Begin your plans with God. In all the mundane things of everyday life, everyday living, begin with the beginning. Begin with God. You see, that impacts the whole question of our priorities. The reason why we don't often begin with God is because God isn't a priority for us by nature. And too often, through Satan's devices, even after we see grace, God gets pushed back to the back burner of our lives. But normally, when God's people are living rightly, you can tell that they live differently than, than the world, you see, because the priority of God is there. The way they spend their time, the books they read, the entertainment. Or the recreation that they use and don't use. How they spend their money. How they speak to others reveals who has priority. See, if you know, if you know how someone spends their time, their energy, and their money, you have a window into that person's heart. Most of the time. Sure. Certain hypocrites can still deceive you, for God looks on the inward parts, and man only looks on the outward appearance. But still, you see, our priorities reveal whether God is foundational in our lives. And then the second area where this, these major truths about God impinge themselves upon our lives is in the whole area of the sufficiency of God. Not only the primacy of God, but the sufficiency of God. If you take all the attributes we mentioned this morning, and all the truths we brought out about God, and there are many more, but if you take just what we mentioned this morning, 
what do you what do you conclude? You conclude that God is altogether sufficient. God is in control. God makes no mistakes. He's unchangeable. He's the solely sufficient Jehovah for the whole of our lives. He's not only the primacy of our lives, but He's sufficient for our lives. You don't need another God beside God. There's no room for another God beside God. There's really no room for anything beside God. God is, meets your every need. No one else can meet your every need. Sometimes in marital counseling, people come to you and, and a wife will say about her husband or, or, or he about her, well, he doesn't meet all my needs. She doesn't meet all my needs. Well, God never intended a wife or a husband to meet all your needs. Your wife and your husband are not sufficient for all your needs. They, they help you along the pathway of life wonderfully if you have a good marriage. But they don't meet all your needs. Only God can meet all your needs. Only God is sufficient. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall not faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. You see, God is your strength. God is your sufficiency. Jeremiah says the same kind of thing in chapter 32, verse 17. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold thou who hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and stretched out thy arm. Is there anything too hard for thee? That's what you should be doing, dear child of God. When you're tempted to give up with that prodigal son or that prodigal daughter, oh, bend your knee and say, Oh, Lord God, covenant-keeping God, Creator of the heavens and the earth, by thy great power and thy stretched out arm, is there anything too hard for thee? Canst thou not yet fulfill thy covenant promises? And baptize my child with the Holy Spirit and with fire in the inner man. You see, so much of our worry, so much of our fretting, so much of our frustration, so much of our internal unresolved anger comes because we don't truly believe in the sufficiency of God. We're too much like Uzzah, who wanted to, or Zayah, who wanted to reach out and touch the ark as if God can handle himself all by himself. We want to help God along. God doesn't need our help. He's utterly self-sufficient. And so the good news is that if we are a true believer, we may come to God with the utmost confidence that every detail of our lives, every hair of our head is numbered. Our Creator is our Provider and is our Redeemer and is our Judge. And we have all in Him through Jesus Christ that we need. For on the day of judgment, even our very Judge will be our Friend, our Savior, and our Lord. And so Isaiah was right when he said, Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on Thee. Our confidence must be in God. Our expectation must be in God. In the beginning, God. 
The opening words of the Bible are like a bedrock, aren't they? There's no waffling here. There's no weakness in God. There's no frailty in God. A strong beginning. And you may come to a strong God in all your weakness, and He will perfect in your weakness you by His strength. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. There's nothing too hard for this God. And so when I don't get what I think should be God's will, from my little puny form of reasoning, I must conclude that at least at present, remember God's delays are not God's denials, as one Puritan said it. But at least at present, this is not God's will for me or for my loved one or for whoever it may be. And I must acquiesce in that, even as I pray on, that God may do great things and, and bring in His kingdom and in His glory in the salvation of those all around me. And so what does Genesis 1 teach us? Genesis 1 teaches us that our entire lives must be subject to God, and our confidence must be in God, our faith must be in God, and it is through these practical truths that we learn more and more as our lives pass on through the, through the years and the decades to trust and to grow in the grace and knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The more we learn to implement in the beginning God, in terms of priority and confidence in our lives, the more we will learn to know God, and the more we learn to know God, the more we will be blessed. And the more prepared we will be to die and to meet Him and spend eternity with Him. Well, I'm going to close this morning by talking to the unsaved in our midst. My dear friend, without God, you are spiritually dead. You must be born again. Your life is empty. You are missing the supreme purpose of why you are here. You try to tack God on to the end of your lives. But God says, I will be the beginning of your life. And if God is not the beginning and the foundation, you will have no foundation to stand before Him on the great day of judgment. You see, if God is not in the center of your thoughts, your words, your actions, your life, if it is not God that you desire to commune with most of all, your life is missing the whole purpose for why God put you here. And God has every right on the day of days to cast you out in anger, in just anger. For you have refused the great God of heaven and earth. And that's a terrible possibility and a terrible reality for the unsaved. You know, Genesis has a wonderful beginning. In the beginning, God. A wonderful four words. But the last four words are pretty solemn. The last four words of Genesis are a coffin in Egypt. You see, we fell. We became spiritually dead. And we must be born again. And my friend, you cannot be prepared for your coffin until your heart and your life relies by faith upon God in and through Jesus Christ. The God of beginnings.
No other foundation will be a foundation for your life. The foundation of money will disappear. The foundation of a, of a good spouse will disappear. The foundation of good friends, a good job, will disappear. Only this foundation will abide the fire. Your creator is God. He's unchangeable. Your judge is God. He's inescapable. How are you going to meet him? And when are you going to bow under him? Let me close with this illustration. I recently read about a man who was climbing a very steep mountain, boys and girls. And on his way to the summit, to the peak of the mountain, his feet began to slip and he fell. But as he was falling, he reached out and he was able to hold on to one branch, the side of the mountain. And there he hung. This man didn't believe in God. But he had no hope. He couldn't climb back up. He couldn't fall. So he turned with his face upward to the heavens. And he said, if thou art God, canst thou help me? And there was a man standing on the top of that mountain. And he heard that voice. But he had a friend who was below this friend, this man. That man could have caught the man if he had only fallen. So he said to the man, he said, I am here and I am able to help you, but you must let go of that branch. That man clung to that branch a while longer. He didn't know if he dared to let go. And finally he said, is there anyone else who can help me? So he didn't want to surrender his life. And that's what you are doing, my unconverted friend. You're clinging to a frail branch. Ready to be plunged into the abyss, the just abyss of God's wrath. And you're not willing to fall upon God's way of salvation in Jesus Christ as a poor, needy, hell-worthy sinner. You want to be saved your own way. But until you surrender to God's way, you will be lost forever. Until you surrender to, in the beginning, God, your life will have no meaning and no purpose and no abiding value. Seek the Lord while He is to be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Amen. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.